that's the main component of his argument is that they know what the problem is. They're bringing back the guy who founded the company and who is capable of returning to their old strategy. I think that there's a, just a much larger hurdle for these types of companies to get over in terms of being convincing that they're going to be around. Welcome to Behind the Idea, where we break down investment stories from the Seeking Alpha ecosystem to find out what makes investment analysis work. I'm Mike Taylor, and I'm here with Daniel Schwartzman. Today, we're looking at a down-on-its-luck chain of tile shops whose founder has returned to revive the business. We'll also be exploring the risks of investing based on a turnaround story. First, some background and a disclosure. Seeking Alpha is a website where investors around the world share their investment ideas and analysis. Neither Daniel nor I have any positions in any company discussed, and nothing on here should be taken as investment advice of any sort. If you like what we're doing, please leave a review and subscribe to Behind the Idea on Stitcher, SoundCloud, or Apple Podcasts. Today's topic, Seeking Alpha author Michael Rogas argues that despite the tile shop's many horrific flaws, investors may want to consider an investment in this company. The theme of today's episode is, can retail turnarounds really turn around? Daniel, give us the setup on the tile shop, ticker TTS. The tile shop sells tiles, not surprisingly. The company is based near Minneapolis, was founded in 1985, and has 138 stores in 31 states and D.C. It has had a pretty awful run of things over the last year. Three bad earnings reports in a row as comparable sales sank. The stock also sank, dropping an average of 35% after those three earnings reports. The stock trades at about $5 a share versus a 52-week high of 22.4 a share. They have an interim CEO, Bob Rucker, who also founded the company and was CEO from inception to 2014. He left due to a related party transaction scandal involving his brother-in-law. He's 65, he came back in October, and there are no indications of how long he's going to stick around. And just to get a little picture on the fundamentals, comparable store sales were up 0.5% over the course of 2017, but went from 4.9% comparable mark in Q1 to minus 4.9% in Q4. The stock trades for 23 times price to earnings ratio. It has $61 million in net debt and lease obligations and a market cap of about 260 million. All in all, it's a company that has hit on a hard run of sales. Comparable sales are the key metric for a retail business, and the stock has correspondingly sold off pretty heavily in response to these issues. Great. Thanks, Dan. So let's just stick with this for just a second. I want to just touch quickly on how bad this seems to be. The chart looks horrific, right? Dropping an average of 35% after earnings each of the past three quarters. The way percentages work, this is kind of like a Zeno's paradox situation where you get 35% closer to zero. You're never actually going to hit zero on a percentage basis, but the tile shop seems to be doing its best lately by taking huge leaps downward every earnings report. And I think that reflects the markets saying, look, this thing is just a mess. And when I looked at this chart, I went, oh, this is just gross, just the way the share price keeps plummeting. So I guess if you're looking at this, you're looking at a deep value opportunity. And so therefore, the question for us is, 
Again, can retail turnarounds turn around? With that context, let's get into Michael Rogus's argument. I think what's interesting about the article is just how nasty this story is, you know, right. related party transactions and self-dealing amid all this sort of nastiness and chaos and falling stock prices. What's the argument that Michael Rogus is making here about the value opportunity? Well, Michael doesn't spare the details. He talks about all these bad things. He doesn't sugarcoat anything. And that's a good place to start. You have to have your eyes open to that. His essential argument is two things. The company has balance sheet flexibility. He goes through their lending agreement. I think it was with Bank of America and talks about how it's not too onerous. He talks about how it's it's not a heavy debt load, which would be impossible to work with. It would restrict all your flexibility. Uh-huh. And then he and then he talks about Bob Rucker is back. The strategy went astray while he was gone, and that Bob Rucker is really owning that things went wrong. On the Q4 earnings call, Michael points out how many times the CEO was self-effacing and said, look, this wasn't good, or this wasn't good, or we need to do better at this, and so on. And so that's not sufficient in and of itself, but it is necessary. You have to admit what the problem is to have any chance of solving it. That's the main component of his argument is that they know what the problem is. They're bringing back the guy who founded the company and who is capable of returning to their old strategy and restoring their competitive balance, restoring their focus on the right part of the market. And so that's what's that's what's going to happen. They did a poor job chasing promotional sales and promotional discounts, which hurt their business selling directly to smaller stores who would then sell or contractors who would then sell their tiles at a markup. They kind of undercut their partners in essence by doing that. That hurt their margins. It also hurt their relationships with their peers. And then there's a a rival, Florin Decor, FND, which is posting ungodly good comparable sales numbers that is, as Michael said, mopping up the floor with Tile Shop. And so that is the essence of the thesis. And then the last thing I would say is that he's acknowledging this is a risky play. He hasn't opened a position yet. He owns a position in F&D, which appears to be the rising star in the tile industry. But he's planning to ladder into the position. He, He sort of thinks it'll continue to drift. It's drifted in between each of the previous earnings reports. And so that's sort of the thesis is it's risky, but they've got the right person back at the helm. And there are some obvious things they could do in terms of cutting down promotions and going back to supporting the professional industry that could lead to a turnaround. Cool. All right. So let's take this sort of thematic piece by piece. I think the first thing to look at is the balance sheet story. And we see this a lot in Seeking Alpha articles, especially when companies fall on hard times and people start to think that there's a value opportunity. But in a lot of these cases, the company is really on operational ropes, like they're really struggling. And we're seeing that in the same store sales falling here. Because this is a retailer, I would think that the net margins are pretty narrow, which means there's a lot of operating leverage here. So if sales are declining, there's a potential for real operational disaster. If that's the case, how much does the balance sheet flexibility matter? And will the markets continue to give the company wiggle room? That's always kind of my question. So what do you think about that argument here? To me, it's always a little bit, all right, yeah, they have some balance sheet flexibility now, but is that going to remain the case in six to 12 months? So what do you think, Daniel? 
I think it's a good point in this, again, in the sense of necessary but not sufficient. I, I can't remember the company. It was it might have been Bebe or another retail company that had a totally cl- well, I'll tell you one that I used to own was Sears Hometown Outlet Stores. If I recall correctly, they didn't have much debt on their balance sheet. And it sort of doesn't matter if you can't get sales going in the right direction. So yeah, I agree with your premise that balance sheet in and of itself isn't enough. But I think it's a fair point that Michael makes because of a couple things. He He's just pointing out that they don't have a crushing debt load, so they do have room to maneuver. In his article, he points out things that the company mentioned from their upcoming strategy, which involves increased SG&A as they spend on incentivizing their salespeople and so forth. CapEx is going down because they're not opening as many new stores, but mm-hmm. they they are spending and they still generate free cash flow. So they're not in a total bind there, but it gives you more of that margin. If you can spend your free cash flow to get back to comparable sales growth, that's important. The other thing that I think is so interesting about this story, given how much it's fallen off, and this was something we didn't have a chance to do a ton of research on what the historic comparable sales are, but they really only had one awful quarter. They had a good Mm -hmm. quarter, a couple mediocre quarters, and then they had a terrible Q4. And the market correctly saw that coming. And I think the stock may have been highly valued before, but it is just an interesting, it doesn't take a lot if they're right that the promotional approach was wrong, if they're right that mm-hmm. there are ways to rebuild the business from the ground up, it doesn't take that much to get back to positive comparable store sales growth. And so I don't think it's a, it's not a Sears story. It's not Sears where I just noticed today somebody mentioning they had something like minus 17% comparable sales store growth. Like that's, Ugh. that's a hole. This is this is so far more of a pothole, and so I think a that's divot, even. exactly a, a, a nick in the floor, something a that nick you can in the floor. Like one of the tiles kind of like fall out or they're loose, you know, and maybe it, that's kind of it. It's like it's, it's the grout's a little bit. I don't even know how it works. But we'll get into we'll get into that. We'll get into me not knowing anything about tiles in a little bit. So a couple reactions to that. My first is a shout out to Bay Bay Stores. Man, I don't know about you, but I thought I thought Bay Bay was cool, and I guess I still think it's cool. And so I must have just completely missed the cultural shift that made Bay Bay fall on such hard times. But Bay Bay got a uh, nice name. I, I yeah, that's that. such a good name. And the two, the all lowercase B E B E. They were ahead of their time. I feel like that's a bebe. That's like a social media type of thing. This this concludes the installment of Mike Taylor's way out of touch with anything of cultural relevance. Shout to bebe. Nice job. You had a good run. Next thing I want to talk about, this kind of ties into the second key point that you started segueing into. And I guess that's unavoidable when you're talking about balance sheet flexibility. You then have to look at the operations and figure out how those two things interconnect. Because if you run out of room in terms of your ability to finance the business while you're struggling on the balance sheet side, then you're not going to be able to continue operations or invest in your business. And you kind of outlined the case that this company, the tile shop, it's not that bad. I mean, the market seems to disagree with this huge plummet on every earnings report. And maybe you have some thoughts about that. One one thing I I just want to interject on is Michael does a nice job in his article of sort of showing actually that trajectory of comparable store sales. Last year, they were really good numbers, 13.2% one quarter, 8.2, 5.7, 3.1. 
that's a pretty solid year. And so I guess that's some context for why this year where they kind of went to break even, that's such a mm-hmm. sharp schism and thus a sharp reaction from investors. Okay, so that raised one more point. Is it possible that this is kind of a kitchen sink quarter for the tile shop? Now we have new management has come in and they're really banging the drum on we know what's wrong. We've gotten it. And man, have they gotten it really wrong. It's amazing. You know, the, the self-dealing scandal with the former executive's brother-in-law making this seemingly terrible strategic blunder of giving the same discounts to industry to normal customers as industry professionals and therefore just completely undermining the relationship with one of your key customer bases. They really screwed this up. Do you think that this there's a potential that this is a kitchen sink quarter and they're throwing everything out and then the cons will be easier later? Or do you think this is more a matter of this is the authentic expression of the business or is it something in between? I think it's I don't know if it's kitchen sink. I think for it to be kitchen sink, they you throw in a lot of impairments or other stuff. But yeah, I think it is a throwing the old regime under the bus to some degree. Right. I pulled up the 8K, the press release that came out when they announced the earnings. And it just said company performance in the second half of the year was not reflective of our position with the flooring industry as a preeminent place to romance your home with unique and premium tiles. <laughs> This is from the CEO. He's a fan of using that phrase, romance your home. Romance your home. And you can see we in our outline document, I put a couple of pictures of what the tile shop looks like and visuals on a podcast aren't great. But uh, I encourage all our all our listeners to Google tile shop using images and look at the kind of displays they have there. It's just like ludicrously over tiled bathrooms and that look really incredible. But I think that this idea of romancing is kind of key to the brand of the tile shop. I've never been in one personally, but looking at these pictures, it does kind of raise this branding, self-identification thing that goes into buying tiles. If you watch a lot of HGTV or whatever, you know that the bathrooms really are this kind of key element in making a home feel like something that the owner identifies with, that your tiling is potentially sort of a part of who you are. And so this romancing thing, it's definitely funny and weird. But you also can kind of understand where it's coming from. Maybe that's a good opportunity for us to get into a little bit of the industry itself and and the fact that the tile shop is a retailer and the overall market narrative for retailers is, of course, that Amazon and online sales are encroaching in on these companies. It's just impossible for a lot of retailers to compete with the convenience and the cost advantage that Amazon seems to bring with its huge scale. The tile shop has this element of romance. Is is romancing your home a source of protection against Amazon, Daniel? What do you think? I noticed we looked it up before. Amazon doesn't appear to yet sell tiles on their site. You mentioned that you were recommended by somebody to go shop for tiles online, right? Yeah, I redid my basement. I bought a home recently and we had a we had a designer consult with us on the overall look and feel of our basement and she recommended a backsplash for the kitchen and we didn't wind up doing it to save money because we're we're cheap, but she recommended value something, investor. Yeah, value investment. 
dude, I've said this off air, and I guess I'll go public with it now. Doing our basement was is probably one of the best investments that I'll ever make in my life. Shout out to basements. Shout out to uh, shout out to basements. Okay, <laughs> but yeah, so she recommended Tiles Direct or some similar website. I don't remember exactly what it was. Tiles Direct is not a sponsor, by the way. She did say that getting them online is cheaper and. Maybe if you have the recommendation of a designer, then you can you can go that way. Uh, we didn't wind up buying tiles to save money, but I also think that you can tell a story that the tile shop is protected, in my view, because of two things. One is that the tile shop is really selling sort of two things at the same time. They're selling the tiles themselves, and then they're also selling the experience of going through and making a decision in the store about which tile system will work best for you, what will really romance your home. I kind of believe that in the case of tangible goods where the decision will actually affect your emotions right. and you might need guidance from a salesperson that for now at least that is some protection against the Amazon encroachment because for all of its many benefits Amazon doesn't give you a very touchy-feely experience you order the thing bang it comes and that's good for a lot of goods where I just want to buy a humidifier I'll go to Amazon because I don't need the humidifier to be romantic and they're probably all more or less the same but it's different for a tile shop I think there is something to well, it's a bigger ticket purchase too. I mean, and you right. want to you want to get that right. I think what makes tiles different. My wife's grandfather founded a marble company, and whenever we go see him, he takes us through the shop, and we go see all the machines and see all the tile, and we he shows us the tile that's from Brazil and shows the tile that's from Italy, and it's a very sensual experience in the sense that you really want to get or sensory experience, excuse me. In Speaking the, of romance. <laughs> you want to get, you want to feel the tile. You want to see how it looks. You can't really bring the tile home and, and test it out. So you really want to feel comfortable that you're making the mm. right decision. There aren't many people who are capable of installing tile on their own who are going to make these purchases. And so there's a, there's a lot of hands-on experience there and hands-on experience in the buying process that I think it does give them some insulation from Amazon and and online buying. Eventually, who knows, everything might go digital. But yeah, I, I think to your point, I think there is a bit of an isolation there, a little bit of protection because it is such a, it's, it's both a big ticket item and it is something that you're not thinking about all the time and you need some yeah. help to go through. Yeah, I think that's where I land. It it's certainly not as easy for Amazon to capture this market as it is for Amazon to capture other markets. That's an interesting thing to think about when you're in general when you're looking at retail and you're maybe trying to do some of this value investing with these struggling companies many of whom are are really facing some difficulties based on Amazon's encroachment is can you identify any source of protection? And I think a lot of times one general thing you can look for is are the goods being sold complemented by some kind of service or experience that's related to the sale? Is there some level of expertise required on the part of the salesperson or is there something about the experience that makes it a higher risk purchase where you can't just go at it sight unseen? This is one example where you could at least make that argument and potentially have it affect your thinking about the investment. So, okay, we've kind of chased that down. Let's talk about what this article does well, what Michael Rogas 
does well. And uh, first of all, shout out for being a lively writer. I think that this is one of the more entertaining articles that I've read. He had something about the chart having enough gaps in it to send a dentist on a Caribbean vacation, which yeah. is nice line. Good job on that one, Michael. But Daniel, on the argument itself, what do you think he did really well? I like that he confronted the reality, and I like that he gave us signposts to say, here's what I'm watching for. I'm not going to just plunge into this thinking the turnaround's going to happen. I need to see X, I need to see Y, and I need to see Z. In his case, he talked about gross margins. As the company cuts down on promotions, does a better job working with their professional clients, gross margins should, I think he termed it a dramatic improvement. It's really a move from something like 66% to over 70%, which... Mm -hmm. With you know that that does end up adding up a lot to the bottom line. So that's one thing he's watching for. His other two big points, I think, are more generic, which is same store sales should bottom by Q2, probably because that will be when they start to lap the bad quarters. Right. And then he talks about momentum in sales growth should begin by Q4 2018. Again, no specific reason for that, but. I think he owns F&D. F&D is, again, 24% comparable sales in Q4, and they're a bigger, they're, they have more sales than the tile shop. I don't know if they cover more types of floors than the tile shop does, but <laughs> I don't, it makes it hard to say that this is an industry issue. And so uh -huh. if tile, the tile shop cannot figure it out by the end of this year, barring a recession or some other big macro event, I think that's a reasonable time frame to say, all right, that's when I'm going to pull the cord and get out of this. So I think I see. I think giving himself that roadmap and that guidance was smart and that helps him manage the risk in this position. So one thing that stood out to me and continues to stand, well, two things, and they're kind of related. One is I'm just shocked at a 70% gross margin. That's a lot of markup. What do you think about that? I'm just, I for tiles, they're just tiles. Is it the romance? What explains that? What explains the pricing relative pricing power here? Or am I am I am I off base thinking that this margin is just a huge expectation? So I talked earlier about that sort of sensory experience where you have the finish right and sometimes they have the polished finish and sometimes they have the unpolished finish and mm. they have the cuts are right and the cuts are smooth and you've got to install it. I don't know if the tile shop actually goes as far as installing, but I think that's part of it is that, again, you're dealing with, there's a mismatch probably between the types of people who are buying tile and the types of people who know how to use tile. And so I think you have some pricing power there. And then also tiles are, I don't know how competitive it is to go to Italy and purchase marble or to go, Vietnam sells a lot of marble these days. Like, I don't know how hard that is, but I also don't think that's something that you and I can do out of a garage. I think there is some moat around your supplier relationships and around your acquisition of the goods. And so I think between the work that's done on the raw good to get it up to snuff for the average client and that difficulty in acquiring the good, there's probably some... I, I, I don't know if 70% gross margins are justified per se, but I think there's something to that. I think it is not as surprising to me. Okay, there's a case for it, and there's a case for it maybe being sustainable. I think that the idea of Italian marble, for example, that does sound like something that, oh, it's Italian, and you got it. You got it here, so I'll, yeah, I'll pay for that. Okay, the second thing that jumps out at me, just to critique the argument a little bit more, is they're going to increase SGNA expense. So they're going to invest more in 
the sales operation amid declining sales. I guess as a company, you have two choices here. Well, three. You can pour more money into rectifying your sales force, and that's the direction that the tile shop's going. You could stay the course and say, okay, we're just going to correct operational difficulties we're having with our sales team. Maybe they're going to the wrong places or whatever, or they're their pitch is bad, or you could cut down and you could slim down your sales force. You mentioned that the expectation is sales will increase. And there's a story behind that with the contractor relationships and so on. Is there any concern that they're just sort of pouring gasoline on the fire by expanding the SGNA expense? That threw me a little bit as part of the story. That, that I guess amid all the other contrition, maybe it makes sense, but I was a little bit taken by that. What do you think? I think it's a good point to raise because I think it gets to the limits of an investor's knowledge. Most investors will not have industry-level knowledge of the tile industry, and they might read up on it, and they can do a lot of reading, and they do a lot of talking, and I still think their knowledge will be on a relatively superficial basis, as was whatever we've said on the call so far. So you're kind of trusting management to identify the problem correctly. You're betting on the jockey to some degree, and you're betting that Bob Rucker has correctly identified what the problem is. And given that, you're hoping that they adjust their expenses accordingly so as to give them room to grow. But if he says we have to invest more into sales, you're hoping that he's identified the right reason for it. And you hope that the pricing strategy will offset some of that. CapEx is coming down. They're not building many new stores or opening many new stores. And so that's maybe they're just trying to clean up their house right now before they try Mm -hmm. to build on that. But yeah, I I hear what you're saying. I think it's one of those things that investors have to be aware that they are not going to know everything that's going on and that they are a minority shareholder and that they are not going to be as insightful to the problem as the people on the management team or in the company. And so they kind of have to read those second level clues about, can I trust this person? Does their story make sense? Does it check out with everything else I'm worrying about? And then acknowledge that they could be wrong. Yeah, I guess my process is a little bit more I really try and avoid getting into what management is saying, and I try and just look at the financial statements and decide for myself what I think. So a leap of faith on management is tough for me, especially in retail, I think, where potentially there's heightened risk that you can get overconfident since it's an immediate experience. People have bought tiles or they know what tiles are just as a matter of daily life. And so potentially there's a risk of overconfidence there. And I'm not sure I can play that game of trusting or not trusting management based on what they say. In poker, if people talk to you at the table, often your best move is to ignore the speech because they could just be one level deeper than you. And you could just as easily confuse yourself as you could arrive at a proper decision if you're dealing with a sophisticated player. So Okay. I think for me, that's not, I'm not as compelled by the same store sales story for that reason, but I get it. I get it that there's a fair case to be made either way. So that's a good opportunity for us to talk a little bit about what, what do you think were maybe some of the weaker points of Michael Rogus's argument here? What, what are, what are some of maybe the flaws in the thought process or things that you, you wouldn't go after if you were writing an article or trying to develop the investment thesis? I don't think there are a lot. I think he did a nice job. But the two things that stood out to me, I don't know why I want a dividend in this story. I don't know why the company would pay a dividend. I don't know why I would count on that in the investment. It's a cliche to say you get paid to wait. But in this case, where 
they need to turn it around. I don't want to get paid. I want them to turn it around so that I get paid later. And so I thought that was a trivial thing, but I, I don't think that a dividend here is helpful. The other thing that was not addressed, and it comes up a decent bit on the articles that we've reviewed on Behind the Idea, there is no valuation analysis here. There's no argument for what the stock could trade at, what it is trading at, what it should trade at, etc. You can you can tell a story if you look at the numbers, and you may not even need to tell that story. You may just say the stock is priced here, but if they recover X percentage of their earnings or their free cash flow or whatever else, then you can make the argument that they should be here. Mm -hmm. He doesn't do that. And so to me, there's just the implication of it used to be at a higher price. And so it should be at a higher price if they do a good job, which is, I don't know, maybe that's true, actually, when you get down to it, but it could be that the stock was just overvalued. So that's, you know, it was a long article. I don't know. I I don't want to hold them to an unreasonable standard here. But that was to me something that could have helped me think through the decision making before I did my own research. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you on the dividend thing, especially if we're in a story where operational difficulties are happening. And if we're in the context where the balance sheet is something, if you're look, you're looking at balance sheet flexibility as a part of the bull case, man, it's kind of maybe the dividend is a counterproductive use of capital in this case. I guess we're kind of looking at this as they're going to weather the storm even paying out the dividend, but I agree with you. Why give capital back to shareholders if the thesis is that reinvesting in the business is going to prompt a turnaround? I'm with you on that. Let's turn the business around. Let's focus on that. Let's not focus on the dividend as an attractive thing. If anything, to me, it kind of cuts the other way that we should be investing in the business. Let's conserve capital and make sure we have the options available to us to continue to reinvest. Right. And on, on valuation, I just it'll be really interesting to see how good we are at breaking down evaluation in detail when we do come across an article like that. We're dinging people on it. And I think it is called for in a situation like this where he does explicitly state that the downside is zero. This could be a zero and a total loss. That's It's nice to have a defined upside in that context because if you're if you're not protected very well against the worst case scenario, then it's helpful to kind of be able to weight, weight that against what could happen if things go better. So, so Daniel, can retail, can retail turnarounds turn around? Where are we on this, this theme? We're, you've, you've stepped in front of a few moving trains, I guess I would say. And so you have some experience dabbling in this. What's your overall takeaway for investors that are considering looking at a retail turnaround story? I don't yet know how to identify the winners is what I can say. I've invested in, I think I mentioned Sears Homestown Outlet Stores, which is S-H-O-S. I've also invested in the past in Pier 1 Imports, P-I-R. No positions in either of those stocks anymore, but both cost me money. And retail is a very difficult industry to get a hold on because there's a lot of change going on in the industry with the shift from physical to digital. It's always a competitive industry and there are end markets you have to deal with. For somebody like the tile shop, home building is gonna be a huge factor in how you're doing. And so that's beyond their control. And then there's the questions that you raised of taste. There's the questions of trends. There's the question of how good a job are they doing at individual stores. It's an area that seems deceptively easy to invest in as a generalist. And I think that's where it's dangerous. And then when you have, when you're an investor who looks at a chart and says, oh, a sell-off, 
maybe there's an opportunity, which I do a lot. I tend to look for stocks that sell off more than stocks that are going higher. And maybe that's the wrong attitude to have. But you have that combination of looking for bargains in the dumpster Mm -hmm. and needing industry level insight, but not having that. But it looks like you could you go to a store and you say, oh, yeah, now I'm Peter Lynch, I'm going to the store, I'm really getting a feel for what's going on. And the stock keeps going through the floor. I think that's where it's really tough. I I think it can happen. I think Michael made as compelling a case before you get to valuation as you can, which is there's somebody coming back who knows the business. They have a game plan. It sounds reasonable to me. There are things I'm watching for. I'm not Mm -hmm. rushing to invest. And as I invest, I will invest in careful measures. And so that's I think how you have to play it and you have to live with the fact that if he invests, if he only gets one tranche of shares at whatever, and then the stock does turn around, you have to accept either that you will have to pay more to get more invested in the story or that you're not going to get more shares and you just have a small piece. But I think that's sort of how you have to mitigate those risks. Yeah, I don't know. It's really tricky. what What are your thoughts on retail turnarounds or turnarounds? This is really tough for me. I think you're right. I think of retail as being something that anyone can do. I think is there are very few sources of competitive advantage in the industry, and therefore I think you're kind of capped at your return on capital. That doesn't mean that successful retailers don't get cheap, and maybe you can get some attractive opportunities there. But I think there's existential risk here, and there's existential risk for a lot of retailers that makes me concerned. I really enjoy thinking about the idea of investing in Costco or Walmart to retailers. I don't have any positions there. I've never been able to pull the trigger partly on valuation, but also partly on being fearful of new entrants just disrupting the story and those cash flows eventually drying up. And I think when you're in a situation where a retailer is already falling on hard times and the barbarians are kind of already at the gate, you know, the main competitor is stealing market share from the tile shop. And you have Amazon as a big picture threat. There are these little pieces of padding there, but it's a space that I've never really been that enthusiastic about retail turnarounds. And maybe that's just a function of seeing so many catastrophic declines And I'm basing that on just a biased view of the overall industry. But when I'm looking for an investment that I can hold for a really long time and that I am confident in the long-term prospects, I think that there's just a much larger hurdle for these types of companies to get over in terms of being convincing that they're going to be around. You know, there's an existential risk in this case, and I think in many cases that in 10 years, you may be looking at something that's just totally permanently impaired. I guess that's what can retail turnarounds turn. I'm thinking most of the time the expectation is no. And that's kind of where the the case has to be just really overwhelmingly persuasive for me to sort of budge from that position. Yeah, I think it's it's an industry with churn. You think of how many look at your parents photos of their hometown and think of how many stores shut down. Look at your grandparents, look at the history books, stores close. And that industry changes. We think of the tech industry as one that changes a lot, but retail, you don't have that many firms that stay around forever. There are exceptions, of course, but Sears Roebuck used to be the place to shop and it is not anymore. And so, yeah, things change. 
I pulled up this year's hometown and outlet stores, and I just have to say it, Daniel. I, I feel for you, man. That's <laughs> that's a tough one. Can, can I slip in one last comment about the tile shop before we wrap this up? I would love that. Wait, wait, let me get one in first. Let me get one shot in first. Founded in 1985, logo still in 1985. Look at that thing. Again, Google Images, man. It's like, oh, man. I don't, I'm really like, okay, so like that's me. That's like, it's like Tetris. Go I'm not playing, you're playing. Well, I mean, Tetris is a tile game. We got, you got right? That it, makes sense. Oh, that's good. That's good. Did Tetris come out, I think, in the 90s, right? Game Boy. Uh, I'm, I don't know. I'm, Almost sure it came out in the 80s, if not they, earlier. Right, so they like they looked at Tetris, or Tetris looked at them, and they were like, oh, I 84. don't think I'm going to do this. Oh, wow. So, yeah, founder. It's like sun's playing Tetris and lightning strikes. Anyway, uh, that's my shot. Uh, the logo, come on, guys. Then again, probably that's a source of value opportunity. The market is probably dinging this company for having too whack of a logo. That's my, okay, my shot's in. What's yours, Daniel? The company on their management page, they do a little blurb of each person in the executive team. And then each one of them says what their favorite tile is. And most of them give a decent answer. They have a specific tile they like, or at least they say, I really like the white marble with the gray veins or whatever. And Uh. Bob Rucker, the founder, the person who should know the tiles better than everybody, his answer... Bob's favorite tile is each of them. Over his career, he has seen and touched over 100,000 different tiles, and each one is special. Come on, Bob. These aren't children. Yeah, pick a tile. Pick one. Pick a tile. I mean, come on. We're going to trust you. We're going to trust you. Their feelings won't be hurt. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me me question the turnaround thesis, really. How can I trust this guy? Yeah. How how do we know that investing in your sales team is going to go well if you can't even make a case for a specific tile? Bob, Bob, come on. If someone comes in and they're like, I don't know which one to buy, you can't be like, buy all of them. (laughs) Like, they're going to walk out. They're going to go to Tiles Direct. Bob, you know what Bob. Tiles Direct doesn't do? Doesn't tell you to buy all the tile. The tile oh, shop. Just, what's, what's your favorite tile, Mike? What do you have? What do I have? Uh, I, can tell, I can tell you my not favorite tile. <laughs> In my house, man, all the tile work is like really, really brown and matte and stuff. I'm probably a middle. So like white with grays makes sense to me. That's probably really expensive, though. I'll also tell you another tile preference. The kind of like very long and thin stacked like brick style. Okay. That's really all the rage in all the bathrooms everywhere. I just look at that and I'm like, man, ten years from now you're gonna be like, dude, this looks this looks like it was from 2018 and now it's 2028 and things are moving. Now everything is like tessellations are big or whatever it is. And I, so I'm a classic. I have classic taste. <laughs> So I'm more like Subway Brick, I think, is good, elegant and clean. I also think squares are good. I'm a big square squares guy. Are good. Okay. Squares good. Squares guy. You're a square. That's okay. Oh. <laughs> All right. I think we can leave it there. I'd stay out of the way of moving trains, guys. That's my – I think be careful. Turn around. Retail turn around. I'm saying my hot take is, man – there are a lot of crash and burns out there. What do you think, Daniel? I, 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 I think we can leave it there. I think Michael's taking it as well as he can, but yeah, it's, it's a brave position. So good luck to him. Yeah, good luck, Michael Rogas, and thank you for an excellent article. All right, we're out. Right. Bye, Daniel. Bye, Mike. Finally, the guy with the eye patch arrives. He was tripping wet with chip fists. He was half dead and dynamite. With a needle marked arms like the front man and some brunch band. A big straw hat and a liquid orange suit.
suntan. He caught himself off with a Japanese hand fan. Motion for silence, and then he began, he said. Thanks for listening to Behind the Idea. If you have a chance to leave us a review or a rating on iTunes, we'd really appreciate it. Tweet us at Daniel Seeking A or at M. Brooks Taylor with any subject requests or feedback. Or email us at Daniel at SeekingAlpha.com or mtaylor at SeekingAlpha.com. This has been a Seeking Alpha production. Thanks again and see you next time on Behind the Idea.